What's up, everybody? Sorry for the delay. I hope you enjoy this episode, episode 5 of the Nanotech series. Took me a while to get this out, but it's about nanobots, as I promised. I think I mentioned it in past episodes. Maybe I forgot to tease it, but anyway, it's about nanobots, and it's pretty cool, as usual, so enjoy. Micro-robots, nano-robots, micro-machines, nano-machines. You may have heard one or more of these terms used by futurists, the media, or pop science when describing the future of technology. Microbots and nanobots definitely sound badass, and it's easy to get excited about this type of technology if we are to believe even a fraction of the reports about them. For example, listen to this clip from the Canadian network CTV News in 2018. Researchers say that nanobots could be the cure that we're looking for. They could be the answer to killing these tumors. Yeah. Yeah, so nanobots are incredibly small machines. About 50,000 of them can fit across the width of a human hair. And uh, there's been some experiments just on uh, um, fish organisms and, and into some sort of... Uh, uh, poultry organisms to actually attack cancer cells and they found that they can build these little little robots that can be activated by light that drill into cancer and kill them within uh, 60 seconds. So just think of that potential of, of being able to be injected with this technology, activated by light, and then maybe we do find a cure for cancer. Scientists have been working on this type of nanotech for years and usually with applications in medicine. But what exactly is a nanobot and how do they work? If you're like me, you imagine a microbot or nanobot as just a very tiny robot shrunk down to the micrometer or nanometer scale. In other words, a robot that is about 100 to 10,000 times smaller than the thickness of a human hair. However, this can be deceiving because at a scale that small, it's not yet possible to make a device with as many working components as some human-sized robots have. We just can't design something that is both that complex and that extremely small because all of the circuitry that goes into a human-sized robot cannot be put in a nanoscale robot. However, imagine a very simple robot, something with a singular purpose such as measuring temperature or moving an object from point A to point B. Well, these types of nanoscale tools do exist today, but since they're so small, they're usually just a conglomeration of a few molecular structures or composed of something relatively simple like nanoparticles. So what exactly separates a nanobot from something like a nanoparticle or from a molecular complex like a protein? Well, nanobots are typically viewed as nanoscale instruments that can sense, measure, or act on the objects around them. The term instrument here is very important because the nanobot will be a tool that can be controlled to measure or sense something very specific. In other words, like an instrument that a scientist would use in a lab. In actuality, current nanorobotics tools have led to the development and use of relatively simple structures such as spiral-shaped micromotors, tubular DNA, and magnetic particles. Ultimately, many researchers plan to make nanobots with the ability to form swarms, similar to a swarm of bees. And like a swarm of bees, the collective action of the entire nanobot population would have greater functionality and purpose than any of the individuals that make up that swarm. In spite of these definitions, whether something is called a nanobot or not still seems like a matter of semantics to me, for now at least. I mean, think about it. 
proteins are essentially biological machines that can perform complex functions in the body. Technologists could refer to proteins as nanobots, but I guess because proteins are naturally occurring entities, we can't really consider them a technology in the strictest sense. Still, if humans were able to make something that could perform even a fraction of the complexity and functionality as proteins, we would definitely be considering that a nanobot, even if it's just a molecular ball of junk. The term nanobot has to refer to something that's been artificially designed. That's pretty clear. Still, I find the term nanobot to be misleading since they're nothing like the macroscopic robots we see today. Additionally, the actual name of the technology, nanobot or not, can vary a lot depending on who's developing the technology and who's reporting on the technology since this type of nanotech is fairly young. That's why until I see some really crazy nanotech creations like nanobot swarms, I'm gonna take the name nanobot with a grain of salt. However, I did run across a publication released just this month about a piece of nanotech that may be a nice component to have in the future nanobot. And that's what I'll be sharing today. In terms of the technology, it was developed by researchers at the University of Toronto, published in an article in the journal Science Robotics, describing how they were able to introduce a nanoscale bead into a cell and control the position of the bead after entry. Whereas much nanorobotics research focuses on developing devices to interact with certain tissues or groups of cells, these researchers wanted to find a way to measure and interact with the environment inside of a single cell without damaging the cell in the process. So to accomplish this, they use a magnetic bead, that's the nanobot or nanobot prototype in this case, and they build a setup that can control the magnetic bead by controlling the magnetic field in all three dimensions. This magnetic bead is tiny, only 0.7 micrometers in diameter, and the cell they're measuring is probably about 20 micrometers in diameter, or about 30 times larger. This means that the magnetic bead has plenty of room to navigate inside the cell. To generate the 3D magnetic field that controls the bead's movement, the researchers built a custom stage that, in my opinion, kind of looks like the power core that Tony Stark put in his chest. This stage has a top and bottom layer and holds the cell sample between these two layers. Also, the stage consists of a total of six metal coils and six magnetic pole tips, which basically allow the tool to generate and direct the magnetic field in all three dimensions. With three magnetic pole tips above the cell sample and three below, the scientists can direct the magnetic bead to move in any direction they want, up, down, forward, back, and side to side. That's pretty genius, right? However, as with all research, they did encounter some issues. For example, one big issue they had was actually controlling the bead itself because they can only move the bead's position based on how they tweak and adjust the magnetic field on the outside. So the researchers needed to implement a system to reliably control the position of the bead. They used a confocal microscope so they could actually see the bead move throughout the cell. Then they applied a magnetic field to move the bead through the cell. The images from the microscope feed back the position of the bead into the researcher's control system. So in other words, they, they would give the bead a little magnetic push. The microscope image shows how far the bead moves, 
and then they would correct for that movement using whatever control algorithm they chose to use. However, the image feedback for their control system was pretty slow since their microscope was only obtaining images at one to four frames per second, which led to a large overshoot. To picture this better, imagine you're trying to give someone directions on how to get to a certain location. Let's call this person Bob. And you say, okay, Bob, move two steps forward. But instead, Bob decides to take 17 steps forward, then move 15 steps back. In the end, Bob still ends up in the final location that you wanted him to be in, but he clearly did not do what you wanted him to do. He took a much longer path to end up at the same destination. You'd be pretty confused or think that Bob was just trying to be a dumbass, but that is precisely the issue that the scientists had to deal with in controlling this tiny magnetic bead. They would tell the bead to move to a certain location, the bead would pass or overshoot this location, then come back to it later. So, to resolve this issue, the scientists had to develop their own predictive control algorithm, as opposed to using a more standard control algorithm that they were using at first. And this allowed them to deal with the low frame rate of visual feedback. So, in the end, they actually did resolve their issue quite a bit, since their final control system could reliably position the bead with an error of only 0.4 micrometers. This means their navigational error in moving this bead is smaller than the bead itself, which is a pretty amazing feat. I mean, if you're keeping track of the size of the bead, and I don't blame you, it's kind of hard to keep track of all the sizes here, the bead's diameter is 0.7 micrometers, and that's about 30 times smaller than the cell that the scientists are working with in this experiment. So if the error is only 0.4 micrometers, then the error is only a little more than half in the diameter of the bead. And this bead is extremely tiny, and they can control its 3D movements inside of a human cell, even with all of the filaments and large molecular junk that's floating about in the cell. It may not yet be the complex nanobot that some of us have in mind, but now there's this tiny thing that scientists can put inside of a cell and remotely control like a robot, which is pretty cool. And so as far as nanobots go, I would say that this is at least a good demonstration of what's possible with continued research. All right, now let's talk about the potential and challenges of this technology. And most of this is going to be my opinion, as it usually is. So it's my favorite part. Anyway, I figured that one obvious question would be, why would the scientists want to put something inside of a cell? What can they do with this prototype? Well, I already mentioned that they wanted to study the inside of a cell. Uh, as for exactly what they could study with their current technology, they did do an experiment in the exact same paper where they pushed a magnetic bead against the nucleus of the cell to measure its stiffness. So in this experiment, they're using a human bladder cell and they're pushing it against the nucleus, which is essentially the command center of the cell, where most of the cell's genetic information is processed. So they use a magnetic bead to apply a specified amount of force and they measure how much the nucleus squishes, essentially. The researchers learn that the nucleus is stiffer in one direction than the other and that's probably because of the way that the proteins inside of it are aligned. You know, this is a measurement that could not have been done without this new technology, so it sounds pretty cool and in terms of cellular research, it's extremely important 
and could lead to some pretty groundbreaking discoveries. In terms of getting people to hop on board, like the common population, it's, you know, who cares? It's just a nucleus. It's stiff one way, it's stiff this way. No one really cares. But if that doesn't float your boat, then there are a few quotes that this group made to Nanotechnology World where they said that this new tech could potentially be an alternative cancer treatment. And that's a surefire way to get a lot of attention on your research. Professor Yusun mentions, quote, You could imagine bringing in whole swarms of these nanobots and using them to either starve a tumor by blocking the blood vessels into the tumor or destroy it directly via mechanical ablation, end quote. In other words, if you have multiple magnetic beads controlled using this new method, you could essentially use them to apply mechanical forces that may quite literally squeeze the life out of cancer cells that can't be destroyed with conventional chemotherapy. So that's pretty cool. And of course, I think the most novel thing here is the method that they use to control the magnetic bead. The actual nanoscale bead itself is probably something that they just bought from another manufacturer and there's no indication that they made the bead itself in this paper but the fact that they can control it so finely is pretty awesome and so that bead is fairly too simple to be called a nanobot but if they can control it so well the bead could be used as a navigational platform to build a nanobot on top of but I do find the professor's claim about using these magnetic beads to literally squeeze the cancer cells to death, I find that claim quite interesting because it not only offers an unorthodox method of targeting cancer cells, but also because I'm not yet sure how it can be actualized. I mean, this is indeed a great tool for medical research and studying how cells work, and the group proved that really well. Nevertheless, in this experiment, the researchers were able to magnetically control a single bead, but if there were multiple beads, the dynamics involved in controlling them would be much more complicated since the beads would collide with each other and magnetically influence each other. And because the magnetic bead has such a small volume, the magnetic controller that they used in the experiment has to be placed very close to the bead, like one-fifth of a millimeter close in order to control its position reliably. So because the magnetic controller has to be placed less than a millimeter to the bead, it's hard to imagine using this method inside of a cancer patient. Like I said, this magnetic controller is about the size of Tony Stark's power core in his chest. It's not something that you're going to be able to put inside of a patient's arm. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I am saying that this new technique is still in its infancy, so no one should expect cancer-curing nanobots anytime soon. I'm sure Professor Yusun knows that, but like any professor, he's trying to get people excited about his research. And, well, it is pretty exciting research, because thanks to research like this, scientists are becoming better and better at manipulating objects with cellular and subcellular precision. Despite my reluctance to use the term nanobot, at this stage, I believe that nanorobotics is a vital frontier for the scientific community to explore. Given all the potential applications this field has to offer, I'm positive that continued research will benefit nanomedicine, medical research, and nanotechnology in general. That concludes episode 5 of the Nanotech series. I can't believe it's been 5 episodes already. I hope I get to continue doing it. I realized that 
my favorite, my least favorite part is the editing of everything. But I really do enjoy to not only be able to share the knowledge of this new technology that's coming out, but also to be able to put my voice on it, my own little spin, to talk about the potential and the challenges of every technology as I see it and as it's reported. I think nanotech is still, of course, underreported because it doesn't have as many applications yet as a lot of other technology. So, of course, it gets less coverage, which is why I am covering it, not only because I think it will be very necessary soon, but also because I really, really like it. And so I'm really glad to have hit the five-episode milestone, and I really hope I get to keep doing this. Uh, but that's all for today. Just be ready for the next one. I don't know what it's going to be about yet, but be ready for it. See you.